Let's stand together for the reading. God's holy, authoritative word. Hear God's word to us this morning. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if 40 or only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold so as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. What's the preacher going to say this morning? Well, I'm going to open up by telling you about one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm not going to say it's top ten. It's minimum top five. Could even be number one. I'll have to debate that one with myself. It's always fun. It's called Tombstone. It's inspired by the relationship between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, who were actually real people in the old wild, wild west in Midwest America. 
And this movie's loosely based on their lives. They take a lot of liberties in order to make it entertaining, which it is very entertaining. But one of the lines that always gets me, chokes me up a lot, it's during a scene when you have this, the incredible legendary gunslinger, Doc Holliday, he's so cool. But at this point in his life, he's dying of tuberculosis. And he's literally coughing up his lungs. He's coughing up and spitting up blood. And they're in the middle of this, this fight where they're badly outnumbered. But Wyatt Earp, who was a lawman, um, had just lost one of his brothers. And one of his brothers was maimed by this bad outlaw group um, called the Cowboys. And so Wyatt was getting uh, revenge, as it were, payback. And they're in this gunfight and badly outnumbered, but miraculously they're doing okay. And as they're taking a break, break from the bullets flying, Doc come, gets to, tries to get up and he's coughing up and he starts coughing up blood. And one of the people on their side, very few gunslingers on their side, says, Doc, you ought to be in bed. Why in the world are you doing this anyway? I'll never forget Doc's answer. He says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And then the guy says to him, hey, I got lots of friends. And Doc answers, I don't. It really reflects something that's very real in life that we don't often acknowledge, and that is true friendship is a rare jewel. That is to be cherished and appreciated as a gift from God. Most people throw the word friend around way too flippantly, way too carelessly. A lot of times when we say friend, what do we actually mean? We mean acquaintance. We mean, hey, I met you for an hour. Now you're going to be my Facebook friend. You know, it is very deceptive. Oh, look, Santo has 1,400 Facebook friends. How many are real friends? That number goes down very drastically. But in the Bible, friendship goes way beyond acquaintance. That word has, is much more loaded. It's, more, it's stronger than the word colleague, stronger than the word coworker. When you understand that the word friend has a lot deeper meaning than most people often give it, it has a much more profound impact on you when someone from the heart calls you friend. Bruce Finn was my church planning coach up until his retirement, what, like a year or two ago, hon? Maybe a year. And we'd meet every month at least, and there were other times we'd meet, but we'd meet definitely every month for lunch and we would talk back and forth. We'd strategize about church planting. He'd ask me how things were going. How's my family life? And, and uh, we'd go back and forth. But the interesting thing is that he would spend about half that time a lot of times talking about himself and sharing about his problems and getting my input and my advice about things that were going on in his life. And I'd come home sometimes and my wife would say, what would you guys talk about? I'd say, oh, Bruce was asking me about it. And she's like, isn't this supposed to be about you? Or <laughs> but I'll never forget one day. He said to me, he goes, I'm only sharing this with you because I consider you a friend. And I don't know why it shocked me, but it did. Pleasantly. I remember just feeling really honored 
that this very busy man who's the head of the whole region of church planning, has so many other people in his life, life would consider me a friend and would tell me intimate details about his life. And then not only that, ask my opinion. What do you think about this? It was certainly an honor. So when you go to church planning meetings and they tell you, well, you need to be, when you're a church planning coach, you need to separate, you, you can't be the person's friend. You have to be their coach. You have to separate you know, professional life with your personal life. It never sat well with me. It never sat well with me that uh, I can't have connections, real connections with the people I love and that I work with. And so people often will say, you know, have your confidence, have your friends outside of church, make sure your workers are just your workers. I don't feel that way. I never could ever do that. Whether that's a weakness or not, I don't know. You can judge, but I can't do that. And I think sometimes, why do people say you have to separate the professional and the personal? I think sometimes they feel like, well, because then you, if, if you're personal, you can't tell them hard things. You know, you wouldn't be able to tell your friend, hey, man, you know, you're really falling down on the job in church planning here, and you really need to pick it up and do such and such. I have found in my own life the opposite is the case. It's usually the people that I trust and love that I'm listening to. They're the ones who have more space in my life to talk. So especially when Bruce said, Sam, I think you need to try this, I was listening. It wasn't some bureaucrat just objectively picking out my life. One more quote from uh, Tombstone, since I was in a Tombstone mood. Last scene, but it was a good one. Doc's sick in bed. This time he couldn't get up to fight and help his buddy Wyatt Earp. And the second fastest gunslinger was after Wyatt, and they were going to have a showdown. And Wyatt was nervous because he realized this time Doc might not be able to bail him out. And he sits next to his bed and he says, I can't beat him, can I, Doc? And Doc just looks up from his sick bed and goes, no. No. Painful, but honest. He didn't want his friend to be deceived. He didn't want his friend walking into this fight all, you know, positive thinking, knowing his friend was going to his death. So he told the truth. Now in the movie, I'll give it away. In the movie, he sneaks out once uh, Wyatt leaves and he faces, even in, he says, ah, I wasn't as sick as I let off to me. But that's all, I, I just didn't want to keep it too. So that, that ends up happening. But the point is, it was a true friendship. Now. Why do I bring this up? You're probably like, wow, he's way off the text. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Imagine, you know, if, if I'm honored to have Bruce Finn call me friend. Imagine if God Almighty says, you're my friend. Why do I say that? Because, and why do I say that in this place, in this text? You may not realize this, but of all the things Abraham is called father of those who believe, father of many nations. There's the most special title that he's given three times in the Bible. It occurs in 1 Chronicles 27. It occurs in Isaiah 48.1. 1. 
and it occurs in James 2.23. Abraham is called the friend of God. Now, if you ever knew that. And the interesting thing in Isaiah 48.1, God himself says, Abraham, my friend. <laughs> Psst. This passage in Genesis, we're going to see the intimacy of the friendship that truly existed between God and Abraham. And we're going to see a good, clear snapshot of this. And I want you to see God had just finished rebuking Sarah for laughing at his covenant promise to bless her with the promised son. You remember he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember that last time? And he said, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So we pick it up right here this, at that point this week. As the three men get up to leave, these mysterious three men, which we'll talk about in a moment, they look down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked with them to see them on their way, as any good host would do. And then all of a sudden the Lord turns to him and says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham? We're going to see in Genesis 18.63 that there are two covenant partners, two friends, opening up their hearts about the blessing of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. Or to put it another way, how God's mercy is shown graciously to his elect and how God's justice is meted out righteously unto unrepentant sinners. Abraham is God's friend and God wants Abraham to understand what's about to happen and why it's about to happen. So what we're going to see is as God opens up his plans of salvation and judgment, Abraham reflects God's own character back to him by interceding for his enemies. Listen to that again. It's powerful. As God opens up his plans of salvation and judgment, Abraham reflects God's character back to him in interceding for his enemies. It's a beautiful thing. And only two points. God unfolds his plan to his friend Abraham. And then Abraham reverently intercedes for his enemies. That's it. So take a look at the first thing. God unfolds his plans to his friend Abraham. One commentator says this. It's a good succinct summary so we could jump right into it. The strange men in Genesis 18, 1-19-29 have two tasks. One is to promise a beginning. This is done in 18, 1-15 with Sarah and Abraham. The other task is to effect an ending. This will be done in 19, 1-28. The awesome task of God and his messengers is to cause both beginnings and endings. You get that? I'll explain. In this mysterious, wonderful scene of three men with Abraham, as we're going to see, one of them is God in the, in the in a human form. In other words, before Jesus took on a permanent human form, there are times throughout the Old Testament where he would appear to men, particular men, as a man. As we know, no one can see God as he is and live. So he would have to appear. And what we'll see also, those other two men, mysterious men, they weren't men either. They were angels. Because you find in chapter 19, they're flat out called angels. 
and we see what they do in Sodom. Mere men couldn't do what they do. So that's, uh, we, we get into the secret of who these three mysterious men were. So we saw last time Abraham reverently insists that they stay and accept his hospitality. And while they're eating together, the Lord reiterates his wonderful promise to give the promised child to Abraham through his old barren wife, Sarah. So in other words, by his grace, this is what the commentator meant, a new beginning is coming for the redeemed of the Lord. In other words, we're going to start anew through Abraham and his family and through a promised son. And I'm going to gather myself a people starting with the Jews and then I'm going to reach all nations through the son that comes from the Jewish nation, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? All right, we move on. So now, after that wonderful scene, that positive scene, which we examined last Sunday, the men get up to leave, and they're looking towards Sodom. And Abraham sees them out, and it's then that the Lord, notice this, very important, the Lord initiates another conversation with his covenant partner, Abraham, with his friend. And we'll see the, the tender, the condescending love of the Lord as we read in verse 17. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? See, that's what I was getting at before. That's what real friends do. Real friends share their hearts with one another. They don't hide things. They reveal Intimate things that they wouldn't normally just reveal, put out there. S.D. DeGraff puts it this way. He was doing so good, and then I believe he went off the rails. And that's the reason I'm going to quote this. So it gives me a chance to explain it. How wonderful that God wanted to tell Abraham about his plans. We must have friends too, special friends to whom we, we could tell everything. What closeness we then experience. Just as friends tell each other their hopes and plans, God made Abraham his confidant. So far, so good. That's me saying that. I'll continue he, what, what he says. Of course, God cannot do that with everybody, not even with every believer. But we must make it our goal in our daily walk with the Lord to become so intimate with him that we understand him better and better and grow familiar with him. Man, he was so close. But as they say, no cigar. Because this is why I say that. The Bible actually says, it's important for us to understand this. The Bible actually says that that same intimacy that Abraham had with God, in terms of that personal friendship, that same intimacy can be had by every believer with God. I don't mean the special covenant promise, obviously, where he had with the son Isaac. I'm not talking that. But that intimate friendship. Now, I need to prove that to you. You shouldn't just take my word from it for it. Why is the commentator wrong in this issue, and why am I right in this particular issue? I'll show you why. Psalm 25, 14. I snuck it in in our prayer of confession so you'd hear it twice. This is what the psalmist says. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Who does the Lord confide in? Those who fear him. In the Old Testament, that means those who revere him, who trust in him, who walk with him by faith. And so, how special of a thing is it that we have here in the Father of all believers that God is confiding in his covenant partner? 
And the beauty is, and some, shame on me, I'll speak for my own self, that I don't value this enough in my own life, that the God who made everything, the God who sent his, his son to die for our sins, confides in me and wants to tell me things that are his secrets. And yet I spend so much time on useless, senseless information, whereas I have God wanting my ear, if I'm truly his. That doesn't convince you. Go to John 15. Jesus tells his disciples this. I no longer call you servants. Why not? Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you, guess what, friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And I want to give a side point here I think is so important. Isn't this why we get, one of the, one of the main reasons we gather together every Lord's Day publicly as the people of God? To stoke the fires of faith. So that throughout every season of life, listen, listen this is important. From when we're children, when we're teens, when we're single, then we're newly married, then we're starting a family, then we, we're empty nesters, then we're retired, you get the whole situation. We will be reminded to keep our relationship with Jesus, the lover of our souls, our best friend, front and center in our lives always. I'm sick of hearing it from myself and I'm sick of hearing it from others. Oh, well, when I'm done with this, then I'm going to make the Lord a priority. Well, once I have kids, well, once I raise kids, well, once I'm retired, guess what? Your life, then that's your life. No, we have the incredible privilege of having Jesus call us friends. But of course, as we turn back to our passage, we have to ask why the Lord revealed what he did to Abraham at this point in redemptive history. And as we look at the context, it's not really hard to figure out. He's about to pour his judgment and wrath out on the city of Sodom. And Dick Lucas insightfully points out, God's purpose, according to these verses, is that Abraham should understand what will happen to Sodom and why. Now look, first God discloses the, the glad tidings of a new beginning, that Abraham will be a great and powerful nation. All the nations will be blessed through him, as I mentioned. But now, he adds these words, and this is interesting to me because this is the text through which my son Caleb came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's a wonderful text. He says, for I, I was actually doing devotions, we were, our family was doing devotions on this passage. And this is what God says, for I have chosen him, Abraham that is, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. <clears throat> Here's the interesting thing. It's as I was attempting to do what this text says, <laughs> to teach my family to, to walk in the fear of the Lord and, and to do what God says and to trust him that my son started asking the all-important questions. Dad, I remember him saying, at first he asked what it meant, and I told him, well, 
It's if we're Christians that God is telling us we need to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them to trust Jesus and walk with him too. And that's why we have our devotion. And then he um, started as a good expositor. I wanted to keep going through the text like we're doing here this morning. And he stopped me. He goes, but dad. I'm like, yeah. Am I a Christian? And I said, well, I don't know. Have, have you told God, admitted to God that you're a sinner and, and that you need forgiveness? Have you received Jesus as Savior and Lord? And he goes, keep going. I was like, okay. So again, the clod that I am, I just keep going down the text. And as I'm waxing eloquently, like I'm doing this morning, he stops me and he goes, Dad! I'm like, and I'm annoyed. I'm like, what? He's like, can I become a Christian now? I'm like, oh, that. And so right there on that spot, we prayed. He received Jesus. And you would think at five years old it wasn't real, but I'm telling you, it was real. Uh, he's like each of us, not a perfect Christian, but he knows Jesus, and God used this text um, to do it, of all texts. So that's a side note, but I did want to share that personal anecdote. But notice what's going on here. That's exactly what God is doing. God is saying, by my grace, I have chosen you, I have saved you, but here's the purpose, so that you will teach your children about me. You will teach them and raise them up a generation that would walk in my ways. And so you know, as that nation comes about and as they grow, obviously Deuteronomy 6, remember that? He tells them what? Teach these things to your children as you get up, as you sit down, as they're by the way. To pass on the faith. And that's, brothers and sisters, this is a charge for each of us to take very seriously. It goes along with evangelism, is making sure that we're teaching our families and leading our families in the way of God, what is right and what is just. To walk in his ways. Abraham, as well as his children, are saved by grace and, and certainly were kept only by grace, not by what we do. But this no, in no way, this is something we need to learn right here and now, it in no way negates the fact that we're saved by grace unto something. Ephesians 2.8, unto what? For we are saved in Christ, we are created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works, which God created in advance for us to walk in. Listen, obedience isn't a bad word. It's only a bad word when we think we're going to earn God's favor by being obedient. That's called legalism. But obviously, God didn't save us for us to continue to sin. He saved us from those things. He wants us to now live a new life. Abraham was chosen by grace to do good, not to do evil. Not to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil, but to, father, to follow the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a reason then God turns from the promise of a new beginning to the warning of impending doom for those who go on stubbornly, unrepentantly on in their sins. Listen, this is what he then tells Abraham. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin, their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. In other words, God, God is saying, don't worry, I'm not going to act without the facts. I'm going to go and make sure that this is really the case before I do anything. I'm not one of these people like humans who hear things 
and then react. I'm going to find out the real facts. I'm a just God. Certainly the point is this. As God's chosen intimate friends, we must live like it. We got to avoid at all costs the old life we used to live before we were saved. Before we worship the one true God. And now we have to walk by faith in reverence and in awe. Because look, this is the important thing that you're going to see next week especially. Only just a couple more minutes this, moment, this morning. Because worldliness and an unrepentant sinful lifestyle will surely incur God's anger and God's wrath. That's what God, by showing and revealing to Abraham what's going on, wants him to be warned. That you can be praise Jesus and talking the talk all you want, but if you ain't walking the walk, look over the hill. Not good things are not going to happen. Look, Ephesians 5, this is the reason we read it earlier, that long reading, so I'll only read a few verses of it. It's what the Apostle Paul says. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, no impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. See, Paul's a good friend. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. That's the takeaway. Don't do what they do. Don't, don't follow with them in their ways. And then Paul says, For you were once darkness. You used to be that. But now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And that's what God is saying to Abraham. Abraham, you're one of my children. You're a child of light. Teach your children the same thing and avoid that. Because that doesn't end well. And what God was about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah would serve as a constant reminder throughout the ages of that line we just sung, an awesome God. Judgment and wrath he poured out on Sodom. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. I hope we have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. More on that next week. But for now, we're going to move on. For sure, God revealed these things to Abraham so he would understand the what and the why of what he was about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to see this as well. We'll miss the whole point if we don't just take a few moments to finish this up here. If we don't understand what God was actually doing here. God actually included his covenant partner in this for a very specific reason, in this knowledge. Because he wanted Abraham to do his part in interceding for the people. Isn't that interesting? God's leading this whole thing, by the way. I don't think Abraham is. God is. He's the one initiating everything. And so that's the last thing I want, to, want you to see here. And it's a very short point. And that's Abraham reverently intercedes for his enemies. But uh, Derek Kidner really puts his finger on it when he says this. The initiative in this great intercession was with God. In the sense that he broached the subject himself, verse 17, waited for Abraham's plea, verse 22, and chose the point at which the matter should end, verse 33. 
Notice it says, when God was done talking. <laughs> God's like, we're finished. Not even there. Below the surface, too, Abraham's spirit of love and justice derived from God as surely as it strove with him. But it was his own. His resource and tenacity showed that the gift had rooted and grown. He was no yes man, but a true partner. Isn't that cool? Abraham was no yes man. He pushed back with deep reverence and extreme awe. But you know, you can't help but see Abraham going, um, excuse me. <laughs> now that I've gone this far, uh, Lord, if you don't mind, like, he, he just keeps pressing back, doesn't he? Not irreverently, not flippantly, with deep, deep respect, but with boldness. Because he knows God. He's God's friend. That's what's cool about being God's friend. Nobody else is talking to God like that. You don't see Pharaoh, God saying, oh, that's cool. You can talk to me like that. Uh-uh. Abraham, God's patient. I love God's response. Okay. All right, there's 40. Whoa, 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 35. All right, 35. Abraham must be thinking, wow, this is getting too easy. Oh, what about 30? God keeps going, that's great. How about 30? And he whittles them all the way down to 10. Perhaps... As one commentator I read was putting it, perhaps he was doing math in his head. Let's see, there's Lot, his wife, two, son, two daughters, maybe two son, future son-in-law. You know, like maybe he was trying to add up, and he thought, 10, there's got to be 10. Certainly that's going to be good enough. Unfortunately, we see there wasn't 10. But Sodom could never say they didn't have someone pray for their souls. Sodom could never say that, that no one cared and no one pled with God on their behalf. God's friends certainly did. Notice Abraham's concern. Verse 23. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, in punishing the wicked, you're just going to allow the righteous to be collateral damage? Surely the judge of all the earth would never do such a thing. He would only do what is right. So it's really important to see Abraham starts in a way that is backwards to us. He starts with what? The character of God. God's a righteous judge of all the earth. There's no way he would do something wicked. And then he tries to interpret the circumstances. What do we usually do? Oh, look at all these horrible things happen. God must be a horrible ogre. We go backwards. He says, no, I know that's not the case. So God, what's, what's happening here? And I think it's important. I, I, I said this, Abraham reverently intercedes for his enemies, and I don't take that back. However, I do want you to see this. Abraham's main concern is not for unrepentant, stubborn people who've had a million chances to repent and just stick their fists up at God. Abraham's real concern is the righteous, which happened to be his nephew Lot at this time because notice that's what he's praying about would you destroy the righteous along with the wicked that's the actual prayer request but it also means something here's the big takeaway that I think is super important notice how if there would have been ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom and Gomorrah would have been blessed and spared because of what the ten Christians to put it in our terms today. Have you ever heard this statement? I, I have heard it often, and 
I wonder why it always rubbed me the wrong way. If God doesn't judge America, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You ever hear that? People have said that. In other words, our, our country is so wicked, and we're not being judged. You know, and if he doesn't do it soon, then he's going to have to apologize. Why is that dead wrong? Because Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have ten. In other words, we should be thankful that there is a remnant of true friends of God, Christians, in America. And brothers and sisters, it could be for our sake that God is not showing judgment more than he would be. The Bible calls us, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And what's a salt? What does salt do? It's in the old days especially, it was a preservative. And so as much as the world mocks us, the world laughs at us, the world calls us all kinds of names, says we're way outdated, we're this, we're that, we're bigots, we're Bible thumpers, little do they know if it wasn't for us, there would be tons less kindness, love, compassion, mercy, and God in their, in their life. It's a fact. And ultimately, God doesn't necessarily judge in this life the way he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Romans 1, we don't have time to talk about it. How does God judge sin today? He gives us over to it. He says, okay, you want to continue to serve the creation rather than me? Have at it, which is an awful judgment. Brothers and sisters, if the text tells us anything, because I have to end here, to, to, and then we can pick it up next week. It tells us that our calling as Abraham's children is to train up our families, our children, our disciples in the ways, the just and righteous ways of the Lord, to continue to distance ourself, ourselves from the worldly lifestyle that incurs God's wrath and continue by the grace of God to be the salt and the light. Even if we're laughed at, we know that we're blessing even those, our enemies, who might mock us. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that we've done nothing to deserve being your friend. And yet by grace, you call us friends. Jesus, we remember, you said you are, I have called you my friends. And you are my friends if you do what I said, what I command. And so, Lord, it is our desire as forgiven, redeemed children to walk in the new way of the Spirit and no longer walk in idolatry in the lives we used to live when we didn't know you. And Father, we pray for our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our fellow, not only Americans, but this world has become small, the global village. We pray, God, you would have mercy on this world and you would continue to save your people out of 
people from every tribe, tongue, and nation as we await that day, Lord, when you will separate people as a shepherd separates the goats from the sheep. Lord, have mercy and help us to value the friendship we have with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.